0: Why don't we turn in our Bibles again this morning to James, James chapter 5 verses 12 through 20, the final stretch through this little letter of James, James chapter 5 verses 12 through 20. Again, just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to be able to make use of the uh, church Bibles in front of you. The reading is on page 1013, if you'd like to find your way to the passage, it is just really helpful to have the Bible open in front of you as I speak so that you can tell that I'm not making things up and uh, so that I can tell that you're engaged and following along. The Bible is God's word inspired by God. This is what God says to his people. So why would we not want to look at his word as we hear it preached? James chapter 5 verses 12 through 20, Pew Bible, page 1013. As we turn there, this is what we read. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? of sins. Just a quick prayer. Father, we pray as we have your word on our laps and our Bibles on our phones, that you would cause your spirit to illuminate what we read, to help us to understand and to apply the things that you said to your people, to treasure your word as it is gold and honey, as precious jewels, where we pray that we would be people of the book. Please transform us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I'm a little bit odd. Those of you who know me at all know that I'm a little bit odd. One of the things that I enjoy almost more than anything else when I receive an email is to see how Christian people close their emails. I mean, maybe you've been there before, you've just written an email to a Christian friend of yours, and you begin to try and figure out just how to end your letter. And so you think to yourself, sincerely, Mike, no, that's way too plain. Blessings, you're getting warmer, but not quite there. In the precious name of the Lamb, probably a bit too strong. And with complete confidence in the majestic plan of God, which I kid you not, I actually received definitely a bit too strong. So finally, after you think about all of these different options, you close out with the one that fits just right in Christ, Mike. What's so interesting about the way that the letter of James ends is that James throws out all formality, all convention and just gets down to brass tacks. He began his letter in a very conventional way. Chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. But here you'll notice there is no sign-off, there is no sincerely, there is no in Christ. There's simply commands. And I think that's fitting for James, isn't it? As we've made our way through this letter over the course of the past few months, we've noticed that James is keen over and over again to talk to us about practical matters of the Christian life, what it means to truly live a life that proclaims to the world that faith is not alone, that Jesus actually really changes people. And so here, as James closes out, again, he gets right down to brass tacks. He talks to us about being truthful, prayerful, and courageously concerned for other brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're looking for really a a theme that binds these commands together, it's just that, truthful, prayerful, courageous. And what he tells us here in these three different paragraphs in the ESV is to say what we mean, to pray in every circumstance, and to bring back the wanderers. I'm just going to tell you at the outset, we're going to spend a lot of time on the middle one, a little bit less time on the the first and the third, but I want to just dive in immediately and look at this command that James gives us to mean what we say. Verse 12, above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Mean what you say. Now, we're limited in time, so we're not going to really unpack all that the Bible teaches about swearing and oaths. Suffice to say, there are major confessions of the Christian faith, even a Baptist one, that has an entire chapter devoted to lawful oaths. The Lord Himself, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, makes an oath... We're told to Abraham to underscore the reality of his promise. So we sing from time to time when we're singing hymns, his oath, his covenant, his blood, surround me in the whelming flood. God declares on oath that he is a God of salvation, that he keeps his promise. But just like nearly everything else in life, we as sinners have perverted, distorted what it means to take an oath. And so James here says, Do not swear and do not take an oath either by heaven or earth or any other place. Now, the background here is pretty interesting because in this day and age, first century, as people began to make oaths and take oaths, swear oaths down upon themselves, there was sort of this um, ladder of, of seriousness as you made an oath. So it was one thing to swear by earth and an entirely different thing to swear by heaven. I mean, we all know this, right? When you're a child, it's one thing to, to, you know, take an oath on your favorite toy. It's a completely different thing to swear on your mother's grave, right? It's all the difference in the world between the double dog and the triple dog dare. It's completely ridiculous. It's completely childish. And that's exactly what James is combating here. The sort of manipulation of the oath formula to underscore or highlight to someone, at least at this time and in this place, Well, really, right now I'm telling the truth. Here's the idea. When you and I have to rely on swearing, oaths, pinky promises, any other superstition, to get people to believe that we're actually telling the truth, our integrity has been completely compromised, hasn't it? The point of what James is saying is that as a Christian person, your life, my life in Christ should be characterized, must be characterized by what we'll call transparent honesty and integrity. So that my yes and my no are just as good, if not better than, everyone else's I swear on heaven itself. There should never be a time where I have to convince you, unlike other times, that right now I'm telling the truth. The command here is clear. Mean what you say. Why? Because the gospel, chapter 1, verse 5, is the word of truth. It is spoken by the God of truth. And it transforms those who believe in Jesus into men and women of truth. No pinky promises. No crossing of the fingers behind the back. No, I didn't technically say X, Y, or Z. Simple, transparent, adult, mature, Christian honesty. All right? Do not lie. Mean what you say. we want to riff on John Mayer's insanely droning song, Say What You Mean to Say, in which he says that line, I think, 85 times. We might alter that to simply mean, mean what you say. If you say it, mean it. If you mean it, say it. Anything other than that, James says, is worthy of condemnation. Number two, pray in every circumstance. Here's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Pray in every circumstance, beginning in verse 13. It's not difficult here to notice what James is talking about in this passage. He talks about prayer no less than eight times in this paragraph. His concern is that you and I would be people who pray in every circumstance. And as you look at the text, you'll see that not only is there an encouragement to pray in every situation, there are staggering promises attached to the the act of prayer by James himself. And so before we even get into the text at all, I want to just set this passage in context. Here's a principle for you as you read the Bible. It's just like real estate. Location, location, location is key. So if we're going to understand what it means to be healed by the prayer of faith, we have to set this in the context of the Bible, of the gospel and of the letter of James itself. First of all, let's set this promise in the context of the Bible. The Bible opens up, doesn't it, Genesis 1, with God creating all that we see and all that we know and making man and woman in his very own image. He promises Adam, if you do not eat the tree in the garden, you will live. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that the Bible teaches that eve and then adam both eat the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden to eat and from that moment on death has entered the world so there's great encouragement and insight in that theological classic what about bob when the young boy is sitting on his bed with bill murray and he says i am going to die you are going to die it's going to happen and the worst thing is there's no avoiding it that's bible truth So whatever James means here about the prayer of faith that heals, it cannot mean that each and every time a Christian is sick, all that he or she needs to do is call the elders to pray, and presto chango, healing happens, death is is destroyed, and we keep on going on our merry way. No, consequence of sin is death. So we place this promise in the context of the whole Bible. Secondly, we place this promise in the context of the gospel. Here's a thought for you. Did you ever think about this, that the gospel in a sense hinges on God's reserving the right not to answer your prayers? If God did not reserve the right not to answer prayers, then what of Jesus in the garden when He's praying to His Father and He's sweating droplets of blood, the agony that He's going to face on the cross, and He says, Father, if there is any other way but not my will your will be done God as the sovereign of the universe reserves the right when we pray for healing or deliverance to say no and in the instances in which he does that it's actually best Allah the garden Thirdly, the context of the letter of James itself. We've seen the context of the Bible. We all die. The context of the gospel. Jesus prays for deliverance. God says no. The context of the letter of James. Chapter 1. Do not be surprised as you face trials, count it all joy rather, verse 2, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials are for our good and growth in the Christian faith. Chapter 4, verses 13-17, to don't you know that God is sovereign over the day of your death? So it would be very bizarre now at this point for James to suggest that the Christian life should be devoid of suffering, that you and I should avoid death, that God's will somehow in this world is your physical prosperity. That is not what the Bible teaches. So, what does the Bible teach? James chapter 5, again, verse 13 is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders. There is a prayer, James says, for every circumstance of life. If you are suffering, James says, pray. You ought to pray. God cares about your suffering. He's not completely aloof to what's going on in your life. It's not as if God is on His throne saying, oh my goodness, here they come again. No, God is inviting you. If you're suffering, pray. I long for your prayers. I want your prayers. It's a a display of dependence and joy in the midst of suffering. How often we forget. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Are you persecuted? Pray. Are you ill? Pray. Family doesn't understand your faith in Christ? Pray. There's a prayer for every circumstance. Are you cheerful? James says. Let him sing praise. Do you know why we're so keen to hone in on the words? The words that we sing. Because songs are prayers with melody. We're praying. And so often, when we experience joy, we erupt in praise through song. That's completely appropriate. Are you joyful? Have you seen a family member trust Christ? Sing praise. Have you experienced victory over a pattern of sin? Sing praise. Have you experienced a wonderful providence from His hand? Sing praise. There's a prayer for every circumstance. What then if we're sick? See, the problem with praying when we're suffering and praying when we're cheerful, it's not really in understanding what James is saying, it's in applying it. We forget. But this prayer that James encourages us when we're sick, the problem isn't necessarily in applying, but even in understanding. James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's one of the most disputed texts in the entire New Testament. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the main and the plain, and we're going to work through what this text teaches basically. Here we go. Number one, if you're sick, terminal illness, enduring sickness, The Bible teaches that the the impetus to call the elders, the onus to call for the elders and to be prayed over, lies with you. If any of you is sick, he says, let him or her call the elders. Not only that, but the responsibility to examine yourself spiritually, if you are sick, lies with you. What does James say? If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Sometimes, not always, sometimes illness comes to God's children from the loving and disciplining hand of a father who wants us shaken out of a pattern of sin. Not always, but sometimes. James says, if you're sick, consider that. Are there sins you've not repented of? Are you living in open rebellion? Confess your sins call the elders for them to pray over you in the name of the Lord. So number one, the most basic thing here is that when I'm sick, I'm to call the elders. Number two, very basic thing, is that the elders are to pray in a very specific way. Let him, them pray over him, verse 14, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. There are people who have written essays longer than you would ever care to imagine about why on earth James commands anointing with oil. Let me teach you a principle. I have no idea why he does. It's okay to not know. But here's what I do know. I do know growing up in the household of a fireman that I asked my dad why enough times to know that sometimes you got to just obey because I said so. Yeah? Yeah. So James says, let him anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Maybe it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's medicinal properties. Who knows? James commands it. The Bible commands it. So we do it. Now where it gets really tricky is this promise that seems almost categorical. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, I believe, and you may disagree with me, that what James is picturing here is physical healing. There's a promise here. If you're physically ill, the elders anoint you with oil and they pray for you in faith, you will be healed. But the question is, what does it mean to pray in faith? We live in a culture that is obsessed with faith. We have faith in faith. However, that sorts itself out. What is faith really? We have to understand that if we know even what it means to follow Jesus in obedience and trust, what does it mean to have faith? Hear this quote from Graham Goldsworthy in Aussie. Biblical faith can be illustrated by considering the faith that we would need when about to drive a vehicle across a rickety-looking bridge. We would not ask, have I got enough faith? Rather, the appropriate question is, can this bridge take the load And once we can answer yes, the question about faith vanishes. Faith is only there because of what we perceive about its object. When faith is lacking, the antidote is not introspective self-examination, but contemplation of the object of our faith, Jesus the Lord, our sufficient Savior. So here's what it means. As the elders pray in faith, they pray asking themselves, Do I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power, the ability, the authority to heal this dear brother or sister? And any elder who's worth his covenant salt is going to say yes. But at the same time, as the elders gather and pray, we pray as this, we pray like this. We say, Father, please heal, but not our will, your will be done. Understanding, The context of the Bible, God does not have to answer yes. Death comes to everyone. Ten out of ten people die. And that James has never promised us an easy life. That's the prayer of faith. Now, we haven't sorted out practically what this will mean for us as a board of elders, but I can tell you this, we're committed to the Bible. So we're committed to do this. We will pray over you in the name of the Lord, anointing you with oil when you come to us sick and requesting care. That's a promise. But lest we think that the power to heal somehow lies in a person, the elders. Look at what James continues to say. He said there's prayer from every circumstance, but there's also power for every circumstance. Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What's James driving at? He's telling us foundational principle of First Baptist Church, every Christian is a gospel worker. He says, call the elders. Let's not throw that out the baby out with the bathwater, but understand that you may pray for one another. You may confess your sins to one another. That's what it means to be a church family. We serve Jesus in the cause of the gospel together. And if you never thought of that, consider this, James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like each and every one of us. You know the story of Elijah. He goes up on Mount Carmel. He prays it wouldn't rain. It doesn't rain. He prays that it would rain, and it rains. You know, when I was a kid... I, I say this to my shame because clearly LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time, but I used to watch these Be Like Mike Gatorade commercials for Michael Jordan. I remember, you know, they would tell me, sometimes I move, sometimes I groove, and I like Mike, I want to be like Mike, and I really believed that I could do that. So I'd go out in my in my driveway and I'd shoot jump shots. I mean, I'm going to let you know on a little seat. I'm not very athletic. And... There's no amount of Gatorade on planet Earth that's going to make me even approximate to Michael Jordan. Some of us begin to think about the people that we read about in the Bible in that way, like Elijah, oh my goodness, well, he was a prophet. I could never be like him. What does James say? You could be just like him. You might not ever be like Mike. You can pray like Elijah because the power is not in Elijah. The power to heal or the power to save is not in a human being. It's in God. And if your God is Elijah's God, then you can pray just like Elijah for one another when we're sick. Every Christian is a gospel worker. We have to move on. Mean what you say. Pray in every circumstance. Number three, bring back the wanderers. Verse 19, my brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It shouldn't surprise us. You look at this verse in 19 and 20, that the same theme of every Christian being a gospel worker plays itself out even in bringing back the wanderers. And what we need as a church family, as people who love and follow Jesus, is the courage to actually do what the Bible says when the Bible speaks. It's not difficult to picture what's happening. Here is a wandering Christian, a brother or sister in Christ who either doctrinally or morally has wandered away from the gospel. Let's be clear. We're not talking about a Christian who has a different view of baptism than us. We're not talking about a Christian who uses a different Bible translation than us. We're not talking about a Christian who has a different view of spiritual gifts than us. We're talking about a Christian who is wandering away into heresy No longer teaching that Jesus is fully God and fully man. No longer teaching that the Bible is inerrant and inspired by God. No longer believing that Jesus is the only Savior. James says when you find someone in that position, it is your responsibility to track them down. Or, morally, when a brother or sister begins to live as though faith is alone, No longer speaking pure speech from a pure heart consistently. Boasting in tomorrow as if she were in control of her own life. Refusing to believe the notion that faith actually works. When you find a sister in that position, James says, go bring back the wanderer. You need courage. You say, well, this is Western PA. We don't mix in. We don't get involved. How could I possibly ever suggest to someone going down the destructive path of heresy or faith-debilitating sin, how could I ever mix in? You need courage. And not only that, maybe even more so, you need the gospel. Don't we sing? Jesus sought me when a stranger, doing what? wandering from the fold of God. And here James pictures someone who's professed faith in Jesus wandering from the fold of God, and he's saying, who's going to go get him? You've seen Saving Private Ryan, haven't you? There's that amazing, amazing plot of a mother with four boys, three of them lost in the middle of the Second World War. The fourth is on the battlefield. They assemble a team who at great cost themselves themselves with great courage go to track that fourth brother down. Loved ones, it is a loveless, careless, cowardly Christianity that watches someone walk down the path to destruction to nothing but celebration and praise. Bring back the wanderer well, you know, if I suggest to someone that they're heading down a dangerous path, they may resent me. They may not want to speak to me. Maybe I'll lose the friendship. I'd rather lose a friendship than a soul. There's this wonderful story. This is probably when Charles Spurgeon was first set apart (laughs) to be a preacher. Spurgeon's about five years old at the time was a man in his grandfather's church who had been given to drunkenness, came to know Jesus, and then later turned his back and continued on his same old uh, lifestyle. Spurgeon, at five years old, wanders into a pub and confronts the man. Here's the man's testimony. To think an old man like me should be took to task by a bit of a child like that. Well, he points at me with his finger just so, and he says, what doest thou here? Imagine that. Sitting with the ungodly and you, a member of a church, breaking your pastor's heart, I'm sure. And then he walks away. Here's where it gets good. I knew it was all true. And I was guilty. So I put down my pipe and I did not touch my beer, but I hurried away to a lonely spot, and I cast myself down before the Lord, confessing my sin and begging for forgiveness. does James say? Know this, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Bring back the wanderer. I've entrusted myself to you to do that for me. Should I go down that path? And you better believe I'm committed to do that for you if you go down that path. And what it means to be a member of a gospel church is that we commit to one another to do that should any of us walk down that path. Faith is not alone. Faith is never alone. Faith perseveres through trials, James chapter 1. Faith works, James chapter 2. Faith refuses to show partiality, also James chapter 2. Faith changes our hearts so that we speak pure words and live in wisdom, James chapter 3. Faith makes us shun and refuse grumbling and complaining and division, James chapter (laughs) 4. Faith makes us patient as we await the coming of the Lord Jesus to save and to judge, James chapter 5. And here, in a word, it makes us truthful, prayerful, and courageous in our concern for others. So here's the, the real million dollar question. Have you believed? Jesus takes us exactly where we're at. But if you think for a second that He leaves you where you're at, then I don't know what you decided, but it wasn't to follow Jesus. Faith is not alone. And in all of this, you know who gets all of the glory through eternal ages is Christ Himself. Because before a watching world, he shows in his imperfect yet growing people that when he said, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed, he wasn't joking. Those weren't niceties to just placard all over postcards. Christ transforms his people. Have you believed? If not, you may cry to Him even right now, Lord Jesus Christ, save me from my sins. Make me like Yourself. Help me to live a life that declares to the world, faith is not alone. Let's bow and pray together. Oh, Father, we... We come at the end of this letter of James and we, we confess that this is a challenging word. We see the vision that you have for each of us by grace and we know what we are in and of ourselves and we, we cry out for deliverance. Lord, none of us does any of these things perfectly. But by grace, a little bit here, a little bit there, two steps forward, one step back. Our lives declare the reality that Jesus saves sinners. and So we pray that as we think hard about the things that you've taught us in the letter of James, that you would help us to die to sin and live to righteousness. Not as a means to earn your favor, but because we've earned your favor. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you take us just where we're at, but you never leave us there. You have this grand picture of a group of worshiping disciples being transformed into your image. A vision in which you, not us, receive all of the glory. We pray that you'd continue to do so as we worship you here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.